Hello, good people. Before we dive into today's episode, I have a quick favor to ask. If Say More has struck a chord with you, and if there's somebody in your life who you think would really enjoy tuning into these conversations, please take a moment to share Say More with them. Building the Say More community, it really matters because there's a growing number of us who have decided that no matter the complexity or challenges that we see around us, we're still going to do our best to not only not do harm, but to make things better. That is a beautiful and bold commitment, and the best-kept secret, y'all, is that there are more of us than we're led to believe. So share, say more, and if you have a moment, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. It helps us get these conversations out to a broader community of people. We've lined up some incredible episodes, and I'd hate for you to miss a single one. Thank you for your support. Now let's get into the show. So I approach my work itself with just optimism. I'm like, if I arm people with what they need to vote, when to vote, where yes. to vote, what to bring, they will in fact vote. And as turnout increases, we will see that this is like a center left country and a progressive nation. And so the way I can have the greatest impact is increasing the number of people who participate in our elections. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever. Join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. January 6th, 2021 was a day that most of us likely will never forget. It was a really pivotal day in American history. A group of people who are denying to this day the results of the presidential election attacked the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., not too far from where I live. It was really, I mean, a wake-up call. It felt surreal, like I was watching a movie about some other part of the world at some other time in our history. It really helped me, and I'm sure so many of us, notice that we can't take peaceful transfer of power for granted. It's not a given. At times like these, it's really easy to resort to a defeated mindset. It's all so awful. It's so terrible. There are so many people who feel that way. How can we ever get to a better place as a nation? But my guest today, Deborah Cleaver, has the grounded, informed optimism required to take on the significant mission of protecting American democracy. Deborah is a seasoned democracy advocate, and she has built organizations that work at the intersection between technology, election, and civic engagement. Today, Deborah is the founder and CEO of Vote America, a nonprofit that provides access to election resources and voter education. In our conversation, Deborah explains voter turnout isn't low because Americans are apathetic or don't care or know enough about their democracy to participate. That's a myth. A destructive one, in fact, that gives people exit ramps from responsibility and participation. It's just not true. What's getting in the way is how hard it can be to vote. The systems and processes that are in place that present obstacles more than opportunity when it comes to voter engagement. People will show up for our democracy if we make it easier for them to make their presence and perspective known. Deborah and I also chat about the beauty of humor, laughter, and being our true authentic selves when fighting battles that seem relentless. Like she says, 
When faced with the choice of crying or laughing, it's often best to laugh. So get ready to laugh along with us. Deborah, <laughs> I'm really, really glad to see you. I'm glad to see you too. Yes, and good people are everything. So I'm really glad to be in community with you. And, you know, one of the things I know to be true for me, and I'd imagine Deborah for you too, is that by the time we come to have a conversation on Say More, you're coming from three things and heading to five afterwards. And it kind of is useful to just take a moment and get here. And one of the ways I love to do that, Deborah, which I think you and I share, is through laughter. One of the things I admire so much about you is the degree to which you bring joy and laughter into really important and sometimes really hard work. I aspire to do the same. And so I'm going to ask you, Deborah, to share with me and the listening audience something that cracked you up recently. Tell us a story about something that just made you laugh out loud recently. Well, okay, so people can't see me right now. So I'm going to have to paint a picture with words, but I currently have a hilarious haircut. I have very short hair. My hair is generally like maybe two inches long. And so I just go to a barber shop, you know, I don't go to a salon. And two days ago, I went to my um, usual barber shop and I just walk in and I saw the very next person who happens to be the owner. And I was like, great. And he's like telling me funny stories and we're talking about his dog and he's trimming my hair. And this is a key thing. I take off my glasses when I'm having my hair cut. So I actually can't really see what's going on. And, you know, after like kind of a short period of time, he was done. And then he was like, oh, hang on, let me like fix your bangs. And I was like, oh, great. He's fixing my bangs. You know, we're done. I pay him. I put on my baseball hat. I go home. And the next day uh, during a, a team call, which is on Zoom, I'm realizing that my my hair looks a little bit funny. Like my bangs look a little bit funny. And I'm like, I don't know, they look like maybe a little bit crooked. And I was like, I'm just going to take a shower. I'm sure yes. I'll, I'll shower and then yes. they'll settle down. And, and it, you know, I got out of the shower and I combed my hair forward and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> friends, I, it's like kind of hard to explain, but I think my, my girlfriend put it well. I sent her a photo and she asked me if my hair had evacuated my head in an unorganized fashion while I slept. It was actually her reaction. And I was like, okay, so it's it's noticeable. And she was like, did you do that to yourself? What happened to your head? And I was like, I got a haircut. I mean, should I fix it? Like, should I try to like even it out? And she was like, absolutely not. Please go see a professional. So I walked over to the nearest barbershop. There's a surprising number of barbershops in yeah. my neighborhood. And I took off um, my baseball hat. I was wearing a hat and I said, I have a situation. And then it was, I was talking to the receptionist and the barber sitting behind him said, oh dear, which is not a, a good way to be greeted by no. a professional who cuts hair. So, right. you know, he sits me down and he was like, well, the rest of the haircut is okay. And I was like, I mean, what should we do? I think, I think you need to give me a Caesar which if you um, did not go to middle school in the 80s, you might not be familiar with a Caesar, but you basically, I guess it's named after Julius Caesar. I think you that's brush right. your bangs forward and then you trim them very short. And this was like a very popular <laughs> haircut in the 80s yes. with like 13-year-old boys. And so that's what this nice man did for me. He pushed my bangs forward and he trimmed them very short. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I just, I have a pretty funny haircut 
right now, which Lane, I believe you described as very uh, fashion forward. I, I stand by it. I stand by it, Deborah. You know, so I'd like <laughs> to think that, that today I'm not only the funniest person in nonpartisan voter engagement work, but I'm also the most stylish. Exactly. The funniest and the flyest. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Because it looks great. But I just am so just oh, happy to hear somebody talk about a Caesar cut. Because you're taking me back to some glorious days in my life when, you know, you got, you know, folks got a Caesar. Now, I tend to associate a Caesar cut with an aspiration to have waves, which is for people of African descent. It's a whole thing. Like, you know, you get a Caesar brushing the hair and you get these beautiful waves. So, like, when you talked about a Caesar cut, I said, my God, Caesars are timeless and universal. (laughs) That made me happy. You. And you're owning it and you look good. Debbie, you look damn good. Thank I'm really you. glad that you're here today. Thank Welcome you. to Say More. <laughs> it's so nice. It's so nice to see you. So all that to say, I want to hear a little bit more about your story. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're doing really powerful work. And I want to understand what is it that you've experienced, Deborah, in your lifetime that led you to have the vocation that you've chosen today? It's not quite a vocation. It's a calling, mm. you know, and I, as far back as I can remember, I have been like infuriated by injustice, just infuriated by infuriated. I mean, like unable to keep my mouth shut. So this has been a problem for me in that if you are someone who will not keep your mouth shut in the face of injustice, you will be on the receiving end of some injustice yourself. Yeah. And so I've, I, I have always been this person. I've always been motivated to, you know, address the wrongs that I come across as an individual. And I've, I've thought about that. I'm like, my parents weren't necessarily activists, although my mom was active in her union. Mm. So from a very small age, I went to like union rallies. And I think that was my first experience of like collective power. You know, I grew up like going door to door with her and getting signatures. And I think that's something that always stuck with me. But then in college, I came out as gay. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm a woman, obviously. And then I realized I was queer. And at 18, I realized that something that was intrinsic to me, something that I did not choose, mm-hmm. was now going to be a problem for other people. And that those external reactions to just who I was would in some ways, like, limit who I could grow up to be, like, which careers I could choose, which cities I could live in. And so this happened when I was 18. And I was like, this is fascinating because realizing I was gay was actually just a relief to me. Like it explained so much. And then I was like, oh, but now for the rest of my life, other people are going to have an opinion Hmm. on me and my rights and my access. And this is fascinating Hmm. to me as a reflective person that anyone else would ever concern themselves with my life to such an extent. And then almost immediately the Defense of Marriage Act came up and I was like, oh, this is no longer hypothetical. I mean, like literally the, the, you know, our, our nation's leadership is trying to defend marriage from me. Allow me to pop in here for a quick history nugget. 
The Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 prevented same-sex married couples from receiving benefits that other married couples received. Now, I want you to notice, 1996, not long ago in our country's history. My friends and I started during the summer, we organized like carpools down to this rally in Los Angeles so that we could participate in the rally. And, you know, like all student activists, we had no money, no resources, but we did have our time. And we had a like compulsion to do this work. And I think I just took it from there. I mean, there's no shortage of injustice that we will come across. And if you were like me, and I think potentially like you as well, we are drawn to do something. Yeah, that's right. About it. it. And it's not that the work is easy. It is not. It is not. Sometimes I joke with friends. I'm like, we do this work not because it's easy, but because we thought it would be easy, like as a way of like making making light of these like insane decisions that we have made for yeah. ourselves in our time. But also because like, because we have to, because everything that we have in the world that is good or great or wonderful is the result of someone doing hard work over a long period of time when it would be easier to not do that work. That's right. That's absolutely right. <laughs> because we have to. So I also feel the way you feel about this sense of calling. We do this because we must. And what I have that I enjoy, much of it is the result of some set of sacrifices and efforts made before I came into the world. And even while I'm here, that may not be visible to, to me. I share that, right, Deborah? And at the same time, I'm reflecting on a quote by E.B. White that I've talked about before in the Say More space, which is, I'm going to paraphrase it a bit, every morning I wake up torn between the desire to save the world and savor the world. And that makes it hard to plan the day. This idea that we have a deep commitment, and I believe many of the people in the Say More community have a deep commitment to doing all we can to both do no harm and to make things better than we found them, right? We share that. Across identity, ideology, we share that value. And yet, we also believe in joy, believe in laughter, believe in enjoying the beauty of relationships and love and nature. And I experience you, Deborah, as someone who, though you acknowledge it is hard, and we're going to talk about what gets hard in a bit. You also are hilarious. And I don't know if I have met somebody who is as effective and diligent as you are, who also is always laughing and finding a way to notice the absurd and crack up about it. So how did humor and comedy make its way into your leadership? Because it's powerful and it, I think, enrolls others to join you and work with you. This is a funny question. You're asking me how I came to be so funny. Yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and part of it, I mean, the work that we do is so serious. Yeah. Like, I want to live in a democracy. Like, that is like a serious goal. And the work that will lead to us living in a democracy is not glamorous. It's hard. I feel like every day my, my work is 10% harder than like I want it to be. And so since the work itself is so serious, I don't I just don't feel that I I need to be serious. Mm -hmm. If we just focus 
on how hard it is and how serious it is. There's no joy there. That's right. And sometimes I'm like, what we're going to do right now is we're going to laugh or we're going to cry. And I have always chosen to laugh. And at the, at the hardest times, it, it, takes, it takes longer for me to crack a joke yeah. about the situation. I mean, we have seen some very not funny things. Yeah. But like laughter just keeps me, it keeps me going. I love that. Because if, if I'm not laughing during the day, the weight of the world is just, it's too, it becomes too much, right? Yes. It will crush us. We will be like crushed under the seriousness of what is happening. This is the thing. I didn't read the second half of the E.B. White quote, which I'm paraphrasing. I'm actually not reading. The second half says, what's the point of saving a world that you can't savor? So then savoring must come first. And I think there's something about that that you know, you spoke to in your own way. Like if we cannot laugh and have joy, then then what are we fighting for, right? So it's something, you know, did you ever have any ambivalence about that? Because I'll tell you in my life and in my career, you know, I'm like you inclined towards joy while doing hard work. I'm also inclined to identify the creative, you know, uh, I'm an artist and a writer and a musician. And so I think, in that way. And my strategy is influenced by those references. And so there have been times, I'll admit to you, Deborah, where it felt like I needed to be serious, to be taken seriously in this space. And so I've been through my own journey of accepting and embracing what is true about me. Did you ever have any ambivalence about the way that you integrate humor and joy into hard work? Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's probably a near constant in my life, right? Like being your true self in rooms is always going to be a challenge because the rooms that I'm in are often filled with powerful people. And listen, at the end of the day, just being a woman, just being queer, in your case, being a woman of color, like we are simply not as welcome in those rooms as we would be if we were straight white men. And once you accept that, like why compromise yourself further? I mean, you know, I could, at, at the end of the day, I could be incredibly serious all day long. And it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to be more welcome in certain spaces, because at the end of the day, there are things about me that are intrinsic to who I am that I cannot change. Yeah. And those things are what lead someone to dismiss me out of hand. I mean, I'm excellent at what I do. And I have been for decades at this point, mm -hmm. and I still find myself having to justify my basic competence to newcomers in this space who have access that I don't have mm -hmm. by virtue of their family's wealth or by virtue of their gender or by virtue of like the university that they attended. And I mean, those are just, that's just the reality of the world that we are actively trying to change. And I don't see changing who I am fundamentally to be a viable tactic for changing the world that simply wants to dismiss me. Mm. Just another way of saying I am who I am and I'm not going to apologize for that. Although I would like to apologize for my current haircut. <laughs> I just need you to stop apologizing for that fly ass haircut. It is. <laughs> I just need you to stop. I love it. Um, so, okay. <laughs> I really appreciate hearing you say that. And I think it's important for us to say it and reinforce it and repeat it because it's counterculture. 
And, you know, one of the many things I appreciate about what I see in younger generations of leaders and organizers is it seems like through some set of events and their own collective will, they have gone through that journey faster, certainly than I did. Right. So I love to see that. And I'll be honest, I take courage and comfort in looking at what I see around me with younger generations of leaders and organizers. There's, you know, there's a way that I got really drilled in a different version of respectability politics. Now, I'll tell you the truth, Deborah, there's a set of things I always rejected. <laughs> you know, I, I, you, you could not convince me that the way I wore my natural hair was going to stop me from doing what I wanted to do with my work and my life. So I've always had my hair in its natural state for a long, long time. And when folks said that was uh, going to be a liability, I just didn't believe them. So there are some spaces where I said, mm, I reject that. But there are also spaces where, and this is going back, you know, I believed in the whole, you've got to be twice as good to get half as far story. And that resulted in kind of trying to perform and mimic behaviors that I don't even really believe in when it comes to systems change, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I'm so encouraged that when I look around me, I feel like maybe they learned from our mistakes. They came into the world differently. Something is different. But younger folks, by and large, do not seem to be wasting precious time buying into those mythologies about what you have to present as in order to move things forward. Do you see that in your world too? I do. And, and we touched on this earlier that you and I both benefit from like activism that like predates us, right? Whether it's like sacrifices that our family made or other activists. And like we benefit mm -hmm. from that. Like me coming out as queer, you wearing your hair the way it grows out of your head, which is like a, a funny thing to insist that someone changes. And I feel like the rate of social change is accelerating. So the people who are younger than us are benefiting from the work that we have done and it's happening faster, you know? So we didn't have to do the work for 50 years for them to benefit from it right out the gate. So I just think they're more accepting yeah. of differences yes. than we were. And they're more celebratory. And honestly, they are fast to dismiss a lot of stuff as nonsense yes. and good for them. Yeah. And good for them and, and good for us, because I don't know about you, but I know I said earlier, like I take courage and comfort and I am a bolder, clearer, less apologetic, unapologetic version of myself in many ways because of what I see younger people doing, right? And so it's good for them, but it's also good for us is my observation. Oh, I draw strength and inspiration from younger people all the time. And you want to talk about humor? Watching younger people mock these people who I refer to as clowns sparks so much joy for me. They are so funny. They will watch what like people in Congress are doing and they'll reach these, like release these videos just mocking them. And they just make me laugh all day long. I'm like, no, you should mock them. You should mock almost everyone older than you. We are all absurd. And we have these like absurd power struggles. And like, I just, you know, I'm I'm Gen X and I just love watching Gen Z just make fun of people. <laughs> and I remember I being called like a boomer by an intern. And I was like, oh my God, this is so funny. You are so funny. You are making fun of me. I'm your boss's boss. That's hilarious. Like, you are a good time. Get back to work. Um, 
like, <laughs> like you should you should laugh you should question what's going on and i just think god they have such a well honed sense of humor yeah about everything and it's really hard to oppress people who just laugh at you <laughs> really good they bring so much joy to what they're doing and also fight like they are not backing down and you need both right you need to have joy you need to have humor and also you need to be ready yes. for the fight I'm like, I'm like both. I'm inspired by you younger people. I'm terrified of you. Oh my God, there is nothing you can't <laughs> do. You're so good. And you are just not, not going to back down. Yeah. 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 Totally. From the forces that want to oppress you. I just like, what a, they're so inspiring. They're so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You said, I'm your boss's boss. You're a hoot. Now get back to work. <laughs> that whole thing was hysterical. Everything about it. Okay. So now I have a question in response to what you just said, and this is going to probably like just annoy the shit out of you, Deborah. but here we go. When we identify folks as malicious clowns and we delight and laughing at them and mocking them, there's very few options they have to engage with us, is my sense. Like just, you know, it's one of the ways that you can cripple the power of a bully is by laughing at them, especially if you do it in the public space, because you're humiliating them and the humiliation and shame cause them typically to remove themselves from the environment. Now, you know, when someone's bullying, that is uh, a good outcome. And yet, if we're talking about building a thriving democracy, we are going to need to, at some point, be able to work together. And so how do you reconcile that, Deborah, in your work? This is such a good question. And, you know, I think about it in terms of politics and elected leaders and how we're often encouraged to work across the aisle as if bipartisanship is a goal and not a tactic. And the goal is for as many people to thrive in U.S. society. And I do think, actually, I know that overwhelmingly Americans do share the same values. You know, we want our kids to be educated and we want them to thrive. We want people who are sick to have access to healthcare. We do want bodily autonomy and the right to choose, like even 70% of Republicans supported Roe v. Wade. So the recent Supreme Court decision went against the majority of Americans. And when we are being asked to compromise with people who do not share our fundamental values, that is not a net good. And what I see increasingly is a people who are aligned in our values and elected representatives who do not share those values. So these are not people who I want to work with. These are people who are threats to us. January 6th was a wake-up call to me as a person who has approached elections with some trepidation uh -huh. for quite a long time now. I woke up at like, around... 11 and I stretched and I looked at my phone and I had a wall of text messages saying, wake up, there's a coup from someone on my team. And I wrote back in which country? And he was like, in our country. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like sat up in bed, called him. And I was like, what do you mean there is a coup? And he was like, armed 
people have breached the Capitol building and are trying to murder members of Congress. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm literally not following. We were watching people armed with guns breach the Capitol building and try to prevent with violence, yeah. the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, you know, certifying the electoral votes is a formality. Yeah. And I don't see how we come back from that other than saying there is no compromise with these people. On Say More, we often pay tribute to and draw from the wisdom of folks we call our great teachers. James Baldwin comes up a lot in the Say More community. And he once famously said, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. I love that quote, and I think it's relevant for those of us who are in the coalition building business. It is important for us to build spaces where we can work towards common goals across lines of difference. And yet there must be boundaries. Deborah reminds us of the importance of those boundaries. After all, How can we build something with people who don't actually believe in a thriving multiracial democracy? So let's move, Deborah, into talking a bit more about the rooms you're in and the work that you do, because you are the founder and executive director of Vote America. And I want to understand what is Vote America's work, because we've gotten more exposure to how you see the world and the needs that you see that need attention. And how is Vote America part of addressing those needs? Okay, so Vote America is probably the fifth or sixth organization I've I've started. People also know me as the founder of Vote.org. And I think of myself not as a voter registration expert, not even like as a voter turnout expert, but as a democracy activist and reformer. I would like to live in a functioning and thriving democracy. And the strategy I've chosen since 2004 was increasing voter turnout. Mm -hmm. with the goal of diversifying the electorate, diversifying the people who we elect to office, and ultimately holding our leaders accountable to the greatest number of people. And so for a very long time now, I have rejected outright the idea that Americans need to be convinced to vote and focused instead on the fact that we need to be able to vote. The United States has low voter turnout, not because we're apathetic, but because it is harder to vote in the United States than in any other nation with democratically elected leadership, and that is by design. So when we talk about voter apathy, we're just echoing conservative talking points that exist to obscure very real, deliberate voter suppression. You're Black, so you actually know that voter suppression exists. Sometimes I need to convince white people that Uh. voter suppression that it's real. And so what I've done for most of my career is just identify like roadblocks to participation and I like systematically clear them. And the roadblock is often just informational. Okay. One of the things that actually will predict if you're going to vote is if you know the date of the election. Right. Because the date of the election changes. So I approach my work itself with just optimism. I'm like, if I arm people with what they need to vote, when to vote, where to vote, what to bring, they will in fact vote. And as turnout increases, we will see that this is like a center left country and a progressive 
nation. And so I've never done partisan work, which always surprises people. I think that candidates are a means to an end, not a goal themselves, but that what I can do, the way I can have the greatest number of impact is increasing the number of people who participate in our elections. Um, And while almost all of the money in U.S. politics goes to partisan groups, almost all of the work is done by nonpartisan, non-governmental organizations. And I just believe that as more people participate, we will see like collective movement towards greater good. Mm, mm. And I love, Deborah, that your core thesis is not that people are apathetic and ignorant and don't understand why this matters, but that they are available and willing and in most cases, need to have the barriers removed for them to engage in this system. And that is um, an asset-based system, which is much more energizing than one that presumes ignorance and apathy on the part of entire communities. You know, it's a very different starting point. I really do believe that Americans want to vote and that they will vote in higher numbers and with greater frequency as voting becomes more accessible. And I will say the people who agree with me are people who tend to be on the other side of the aisle. So it's interesting how much time I spend with progressives, Mm. like countering the narrative that people are apathetic or that they need to be convinced to vote. We vote on a work day because 145 years ago, Tuesday was the best day for the greatest number of people to participate in elections. It was like the most convenient day. And we chose Tuesday because it was convenient. Here we are 145 years later, and Tuesday is wildly inconvenient for the overwhelming majority of people, but we still vote on Tuesday. Mm. Um, and I'm just like, if you if you approach elections with this idea that, you know, they should be accessible, you will see an immediate increase yes, yes. in turnout. That's encouraging and energizing. I mean, I believe it as well, but hearing you say it out loud as a foundation for your work, as a core principle and belief that informs your work is just really important. And counterculture, to your point, you know, often I hear about apathy, 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 and why, you know, we have to convince people that they should know better and do better. And it's just such a different starting point. Numbers support what Deborah is telling us. Even though in 2022, 70% of the voter population was registered to vote, only 52% showed up to the polls. People actually want to vote. We just don't make it easy for them to do so. Deborah believes that removing structural and systemic barriers, like requiring people to vote in person, will dramatically increase voter turnout. So then we started looking at states that offer what's called uh, permanent absentee voting, where you can sign up once and then you receive your ballot in the mail in perpetuity. Mm. So in those states, you you opt yourself in, but some people have chosen to vote by mail and some people have chosen to vote in person. And we saw a 30 percentage point increase in turnout with the people who have opted to receive their ballots in the mail. And going into it, we were like, but probably not with the young people, right? Because young people don't check their mail. No, we saw the biggest increase in turnout with the youngest voters, 18 to 24 years old. And then I was like, okay, wait, the only thing that is really setting them apart is that they receive their ballot. It shows up at their house and nothing 
serves as a better reminder to vote than just your ballot being on your kitchen table or in your mailbox. And this is an unorthodox statement. We do not have a voter registration problem in this country. We have a voter turnout problem. So almost every state will let you sign up to vote by mail. We have no excuse absentee voting in almost every state that we should do that, that we should encourage people to vote by mail. It increases turnout. It reduces election administration costs. It keeps the lines short at the polls and lines are longer in certain communities deliberately. Yeah. The other thing that we are really focused on is that 25 states have same day registration, meaning that you can register and vote at the same time mm-hmm. on election day. So we don't need to spend these like tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars registering people to vote before the election, we can just let them know, bring your ID with you to the polls. It's not too late. There's literally in half the states of this country, it is not, election day is not too late. You go, you register, you can participate. So once you just reject outright the idea that Americans are apathetic and they need to be convinced to vote, there are just all these opportunities to make voting more accessible and more convenient for people. And I, I realize a lot of my friends who don't know me professionally will think of me as this like snarky cynic. And then I am just like such an optimistic person <laughs> when it comes to U.S. democracy and participation. And I have just been smiling the entire time that we have been talking about this. And I know that other people who do the work that I do will seek me out. Yes when they're feeling like we're fighting this like uphill battle and and we have elected officials who don't believe in democracy. And I'm like, no, we have everything we need to continue to function and thrive as a democracy. Despair is the enemy. That's right. Like, That's right. It is not hard to increase voter turnout if you just stop thinking that you need to convince people to vote. You don't need to convince people to participate in their own lives to like seek better for themselves and their families. That's not hard. I love this so much. (laughs) And we need it so desperately. I need more people to understand and believe and know what you're saying. Because like when we focus on, when our analysis of the the need is incorrect and deficit-driven, we come up with solutions that are irrelevant and wasteful and distracting. Okay, say more family. Now it's time for us to move on to your community questions for Deborah. As a reminder, if you'd like to contribute with questions for future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or X, which I stubbornly continue to call Twitter. I know, I'm, I'm trying. There you'll get a chance to be in conversation with upcoming guests. So this question is, and I feel like you've spoken to this a bit, but it's, it's good to call it out. How can the lessons learned from past movements and historical struggles for justice guide our current purpose-driven work in the face of adversity. Thinking about like the struggle for queer liberation. Yes. And how much of it had to be uncompromising because, you know, we were talking earlier about like trying to break bread with people who you don't have anything in common with. And I mean, you know, a lot of the struggle for queer liberation wasn't about 
hearts and minds. There are always going to be people who hate gay people, who think they're lesser than. It was just like a relentless reassertion of your fundamental rights and values as a human. Mm. You don't ask for your rights, you take them. Yeah, yeah. That is something that I believe, that is the difference between a right and a privilege. And then I think about the struggle for like Black liberation. And these are ongoing struggles. I want to be clear. Yes. But like, you know, Black Americans couldn't ask for their rights. They have to take their rights. I mean, there is people who are who hold power over us are not going to voluntarily give us this power. And I just think about how many people who came before me who were uncompromising, because that is not how we gain our rights. We have people who are uncompromising, who then create space for other people to step up to uh, move the middle. Absolutely. So is there something that you wanted to say on Say More that you uh, haven't had a chance to speak to yet? I want to make sure we hold space for that. I was just thinking about how dark things feel right now, politically, yeah. Yeah. globally. And I, I just wanted a chance to speak to a greater number of people about the fact that you have to have faith in U.S. democracy, that it is challenging and it is messy, but democracy is the system under which the greatest number of people are likely to thrive. And to look at elections, not just as these like petty political dramas, which is how they're often portrayed in the U.S., yes. but as what is needed for you to fundamentally thrive and do not despair right now. I see some of our elected leaders and I see how they are abandoning democracy and how they're trying to convince like us to abandon democracy as well. And that is the last gasp of a dying system of inequity and injustice. We have to keep the faith right now. We have to participate. We have to reject these narratives that Americans don't want to participate. We have to move forward with like hope. We have what we need to succeed as a nation and we just need to like push forward right now. Mm. Plus, I just wanted a chance to talk to you. <laughs> Deborah, I'm so glad I asked you that last question because you just went in on that. <laughs> that was so good. And I'm so glad I got to hear it and that the Say More community will get to hear it. And we absolutely did talk about optimism, not without reason. Like reasonable optimism is it's abundant. Like we do have all that we need and we need to be focusing on the things that actually will make the difference. And I feel like you spoke to all of that so beautifully today. So thank you, Deborah. It was so nice to see you. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode. <laughs>